that I knew the timing of, of everything, but it was for me. There was no reason to keep time on all those things. Yeah. You know, say so why keep time if if I was if I was not planning on getting caught or anything. There was no reason for me to keep dates here yeah. and there. Yeah. It's just. You know, I didn't plan to be on the other side of this window. No, I know. From DMT Media and Audio Boom, this is the Dead Man Talking podcast with me, Alex Hannaford. In the last episode, we heard that Resendiz had also confessed to his attorney, Les Ribnik, about killing Daryl Colahaco, and he told him specific details of the crime scene, just as he had to the former AP reporter, Mark Babinek. We also heard how the brutality of Daryl's murder was consistent with somebody who'd killed before, according to serial killer expert Jack Levin. Before we start today, I've had a few people getting in touch saying they can't wait for the twist in the story or can't wait to find out how it ends. And I just wanted to explain a bit about the behind the scenes process of how me and Pete, the producer, put Dead Man Talking together. Other than my initial meeting with Resendiz in 2003 and the subsequent article I wrote, this investigation pretty much began when the podcast did. We're finding things out all the time, and they appear in episodes shortly after. Unlike a lot of other podcasts, this is not a story where all the findings were already available and I'm just choosing how to tell you them in an interesting way. This is new. There are some exciting developments regarding the potentially wrongful convictions of Diamantina Colahaco and Andres Mascaro, and more of that at the end of this episode. But I'm also trying to learn as much as possible about Resendiz after his arrest, things he told journalists and lawyers about other cases which have strong similarities to the confessions that he told me. And I think it's really important to do this to get the full picture. between uh, Arizona and California. There were three or four in, in the border. Three or four between Arizona and California. Yeah. Remember they got the... the, the river, so, today, the you remember Resendez's confession to me about a quadruple murder on the California-Arizona border? He was vague with the details, but I strongly suspect he was referring to the town of Blythe along the Colorado River. Well, I've learned of a very similar incident involving him, this time in Florida. Hello, this is Joe. Hey, Joe, it's Alex. Hey, Alex, how's it going? Good, man. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. If you just start with saying what your name is and, and what you do, that'd be great. Alrighty. Uh, my name's Joe Callahan. Uh, I'm a senior writer for the Ocala Star Banner in Florida. And one of my stories that I'll always remember is the Angel Resendez case, one that I was fascinated and with for many, many years. I wanted to talk to Joe about a 1997 story that I'd come across in which he'd written about a case involving two runaways. Their names were Wendy Von Huben and Jesse Howell. She decided to run away with him from Woodstock, Illinois. 
They traveled all the way down to, I believe it was the Tampa area, stayed in a hotel, and then got on a train towards uh, Ocala. Marion County, smack in the middle of Florida, is a land of horse ranches, small towns, and trains. Lots of trains. Many of the freight cars traveling these tracks are full of orange juice from the fertile sunshine state. And then decided to ride the trains back to down south, and that's when they met Angel Resendez. They were coming through Marion County, and there in Bellevue, north of Bellevue, there's a like a mile stretch where there's two tracks where one train can get off the tracks and another train can pass going north. They were going south. It was here that Resendez decided to commit yet another horrific murder. Jesse Howell got off the train, stretched his legs, smoked a cigarette. Resendez is believed to have gotten the a coupling that couples the two trains together very heavy and struck him in the back of the head there on the railroad tracks. Jesse's body was found. The authorities knew then that Von Huben was missing. Marion County, Florida investigators have a double mystery on their hands. Who bludgeoned 19-year-old Jesse Howell to death, then left his body beside a railway track? And what has become of his 16-year-old girlfriend, Wendy? We need to know, is she okay? That's the critical question. Police comb the surrounding area but find no sign of Wendy or any clues as to the identity of Jesse's killer. Fast forward a couple of years and Von Huben is still missing. Even though we knew that we had the body of Jesse Howell, I think the critical thing at that time was where was Wendy? Resendez is sitting on death row in Livingston, Texas, and he writes a letter to a Florida Christian organization called Love Press. And in it, he confesses to the murder of Jesse Howell. He also confesses to the murder of Von Huben. After seeing the letter, Major Patty Lumpkin and Detective Jeff Owens from the Marion County Sheriff's Office decided to fly out to Texas to interview Resendez. They decided to go out to interview him to verify his story and if it, they could verify that it fit. Resendez told them where to find Wendy Von Huben's body. However, much like when he told me about the quadruple murder on the California-Arizona border, he was vague with the place names, but specific with the details. He finally opened up with Patty and told him exactly about how far they went after he killed Jess Howell, where they could find her. To help identify the location, he described the train journey that he took with Von Huben. All he could remember is it traveled for about... 15 or 20 minutes, then it started slowing down because they were going into the small town, which has another big rail yard, and that's Wildwood, Florida. He said it started slowing down to a point where I could we could get jump off, and I forced her to jump off. And about a mile or so north of Wildwood, they began there. A search team followed Resendez's directions and sure enough found skeletal remains wrapped in a blanket and camouflage jacket about 15 miles to the south of where Howell's body was found. They followed his directions to the T and it wasn't within but a few hours they found her remains exactly where he said they would be. This is astonishing. This So basically, here are two detectives from Florida flying out to Texas to interview Resendez and he not only confesses to Howell's murder but he also confesses to von hubens and then he tells them where the body is yes and the 
And the reason for that, the Marion County Sheriff's Office detectives agreed to, after calling the state attorney's office, that if he led him to Von Human's body, they would not prosecute his case because he was already on death row for many others. And um, he was already facing the death penalty. They made a deal with the devil, so to speak, to just to find Wendy's body so that the parents could bury her. It sounds to me like the only people that would have been inconvenienced with another trial would have been the Florida authorities. I mean, you know, he he was going to die anyway. Like There was no incentive for him to confess to this. This is why it's interesting to me. You're absolutely right. There's no incentive. How did you kill them? I, f- I tried first to hit him in the head with a with a three by three. That looks like a four by four, but it just just a little bit smaller. What piece of what was it? Wood or wood? And it, and it broke. As soon as they broke, I um, I got a pipe that was laying in the rail, and I finished him off with it with the pipe. There were such clear parallels with the Blythe confessions here, and I wanted to get Joe's take on what Resendez had told me. He was able to tell me about what he said was a triple or quadruple murder on the border of Arizona and California. Now, he couldn't remember the name of the town. Well, with with Resendez, he could never remember towns. Like I told you about the Von Huben, he said it was another town that we were coming into on the train started slowing until they found Von Huben's body, I would have would have probably said, well, he probably would say anything, but he did lead him to Von Huben's body. Joe, I, I really appreciate you you taking the time out to chat to me. I know you're a busy, busy guy, but um, I think it really is a interesting um, part of the story. I appreciate you. Talk to you later. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. There are such big similarities with Blythe. Resendez could remember details of the location, but not place names. you remember back in 2003, I just moved to Texas. I, I'd been a music journalist essentially before that. And, and here I was interviewing Resendez on death row. And he told me this confession. I moved back to the UK. I wrote about the story and I mentioned Blythe. And now here we are 15 years on. And I'm looking back thinking if only I'd had the means to come back to the States and really dive into this confession in more detail things could have been very different. I mean, Resendez was still alive. He was on death row. The authorities could have gone and asked to speak to him in more detail and see what he knew about these victims in Blythe, California. Who knows? Maybe they would have had more chance of finding bodies a few years after the murders happened than they would 15 years on. A brief word about one of our sponsors. The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance. It covers a range of subjects from politics and business to science, technology, environment and the arts. Now, the broad range of topics means there's something in The Economist for everyone. I subscribe. It's great to keep up with what's going on back in my homeland. At the moment, it's all about Brexit. And I can get up to speed on daily developments. But also, it has really interesting pieces relevant to stories I'm working on as a journalist or which matter to me here in the US. They often ask deeper questions, like a recent piece I read that looked at the risks of Donald Trump boosting America's alliance with Saudi Arabia after the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. In short, The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Get your free copy now. For your free 
print copy of The Economist, listeners to Dead Man Talking can text MAN, that's M-A-N, to 78070. That's text MAN to 78070 to get your free print copy of The Economist. We're now moving from Florida to California, and it's another brutal murder, as you might expect. This is Justin Brooks, director of the California Innocence Project and a professor at California Western School of Law. My client, Bill Richards, uh, came home from work one night. He worked at a factory as an engineer. And when he gets home, it's out in the middle of the desert in California, San Bernardino, so... It was pitch black, couldn't see anything, and he didn't understand why the generator wasn't on. So he walks in his front yard and actually trips over his wife's dead body. Bill's wife, 40-year-old Pamela Richards, had been bludgeoned to death. A series of errors by law enforcement would mean that the investigation into who killed Pamela was off to a bad start. That night, the officers who responded, because they were in the middle of nowhere didn't really know how to secure a crime scene. They even let neighborhood dogs kind of roam around the body while it was left on the front yard. They did no time of death analysis. They didn't take the temperature of the body. And her body was actually partially buried by dogs that night after they'd already been on the scene. So some of the worst crime scene work I've ever seen done. Then they start investigating the case. They don't get a suspect that they're happy with. So, as typically happens in a case like that, they start looking at the husband. Three weeks after Pamela's death, Bill was arrested. He was tried three times, and after two hung juries, the jury finally convicted him of first-degree murder. An expert for the prosecution testified that bloodstains taken from Bill Richards' trousers were consistent with blood spattering after an attack. Plus, a forensics expert testified that a bite mark on Pamela Richards' hand matched her husband's dental abnormalities. This is when Justin and the Innocence Project got involved to look into Bill's case. The case had all been done with very limited DNA testing, which came back with nothing useful. And when we did all these tests, we came back with, first of all, that the hair under her fingernails was neither her hair nor Bill's. So, you know, that's surprising that she'd have someone else's hair and most likely would be the attacker. We found male DNA on the murder weapon that was not Bill's. Justin and his team found there were big problems with the bite mark evidence that was so vital to the prosecution's case. The photo of the mark was taken at a bad angle, so you couldn't really match it up. So uh, I ended up meeting with the expert who testified about the bite mark and showed him all our new evidence showing that the angle was incorrect and, um, and we corrected the angle. And he ultimately agreed that he, te- he testified inaccurately and that it was not a match to Bill. So we had all this kind of collective evidence. And as I got into the case and looked at how she was killed, it was a classic case of overkill where someone is just beaten repeatedly, and she was beaten until her brains were exposed. This is probably starting to sound familiar to you. When I went out to the crime scene uh, and talked to the neighbors, there were train tracks that ran behind their property, and some of the neighbors said that vagrants uh, did occasionally jump off the trains there because the train slowed down. Uh, It was like a curve in the tracks at that location. 
So I decided to to visit with Angel Resendez. The modus operandi fitted. At the time of the murder, Resendez was at large and it bore all the hallmarks of the railroad killer. Justin went to Livingston to talk to Resendez, to the same prison I'd been to. I spent three years working in a prison in D.C. I've, I've been a criminal defense attorney for 30 years. I've never come across as pure a sociopath as Angel Resendez. I said, look, uh, you know, you, you're in prison here and you know how bad it is being in prison. Now imagine being in prison for something you didn't do. And, you know, imagine the situation my client's in where his wife gets murdered and then he ends up in prison for her murder if he's innocent. And I said, I've got these photos from the crime scene. You know, I'd love if you could look at them. And, and he just said, oh, yeah, sure. Show me the photos. So I put them out and he said, yeah, yeah, this looks like something I would have done. And I said, what? Why would you have done this? And he said, well, look at her shirt. And the victim was wearing a shirt that says shady lady. And then she had no pants and no underwear on. And she's you know, lying there beaten to death. And he said, well, that's disrespectful. And <laughs> I was like, what? Was there anything that he knew or that he said that you hadn't told him? That made you think this is definitely him? I've been investigated hundreds of murder cases, and there's nothing that made me definitely sure it was him. But there was a bunch of indicators. It started with the fact the way the killing was done. It was exactly the way he would have done it. The second thing was it was exactly the location where he would have done it. And it was a woman who was home alone, which was along with his earmarks of what he does. But he had a lot of knowledge about the San Bernardino area. He knew the train tracks. He knew the different stops along the train track. And so he looked good for it. Now, we don't know because we could never match up the DNA um, with him. And the bite mark was, you know, very difficult. And also, we're still not even sure if it was a bite mark or if it was a human bite mark. Because of this, when Justin worked on Bill's appeal... Resendez's name wasn't mentioned, but they were successful, and incredibly, after 23 years in prison, Bill was released. Southern California man was recently released from prison after spending 23 years behind he bars. He walked out of a Rancho Cucamonga prison 23 years after his he was convicted. His name is Bill Richards, and he maintained for two decades that he did so not kill his So if Richards didn't murder his wife, then who did? The California Innocence Project believes there's a possibility it was Angel Resendez, a serial killer dubbed the Railroad Killer. It's hard to articulate just how incredible this was for Bill, but his wife's murder has yet to be solved. Justin explained just how difficult it is to get convictions overturned. It's not impossible, but it's extremely tricky. Everyone's interested in moving on in these cases. And getting them reopened, even when you have compelling evidence, is just extraordinarily difficult. I'm not law enforcement, but I've solved several murder cases and had to, you know, literally rub the police and prosecutor's nose in in the evidence of this other person who's committed murders. And some of them are still out there on the streets that were not pursued, even after cases where we've exonerated people and walked them out. And the judges said this person didn't do it. And we've, we've presented the evidence of the person who did do it, and they're not pursued. I couldn't stop thinking about Bill Richards, how 
difficult it must have been for him to not only deal with the brutal murder of his wife, but then be convicted of that murder and spend 23 years in prison for it when you didn't do it. Oh, hey, is that Bill? Who is this? Hey, it's Alex Hannaford. I'm the journalist. Oh, oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> the name that came up on here was different. How are you doing, Bill? I'm doing fine. Yeah, good. I really wanted to talk to Bill, and I asked Justin to put me in touch with him. Was there a point in that 23 years when you thought, I'm never going to get out? Well, when I learned the system and how bad it was, because I'd never had dealings with the court before, and when I realized just how corrupt at least that area was, it was a real struggle. I kept thinking, well, when I get to higher courts and things, it'll change, but it, it didn't happen. I don't know that I ever believed I was getting out, but I never stopped fighting. You got sick in prison as well, I understand. Yes, I uh, I came down with prostate cancer, and I had to fight for probably as long as two years to get just a simple PSA test. And when I did get the test, uh, basically uh, one of the doctors told me repeatedly it was fine. But it wasn't fine. Bill told me that he's since found out the signs of cancer were there, and he should have had a biopsy at that point to confirm this and start getting treatment. His lawyers had to fight the prison authorities for this to happen, something that took a couple of years. Basically what they're finding now is that the cancer was already advanced, which means it's in the body. It's not in the local area anymore, so there was no treating it anymore. So at this point, we, the best doctors I talked to say, well, we can maybe do this and that, little things to kind of extend life, keep it down for a while, but there is no cure. Do you believe that you, had you not been incarcerated, Bill, you would have been able to get this looked at sooner and you wouldn't be in the position you're in now? Definitely. So it would have been found and it would have been treated. I had the symptoms and it took me, it had to be in the range of two years to get the first test, which I never knew the results. Take me through the day you left the prison after 23 years, Bill? Oh, Lord. <laughs> well, that was kind of a, a strange feeling because even though you walk out the door and your heart, you just don't feel free to this day, I still don't feel free. Uh, it's, I don't know, I talked to other exonerees and it's pretty much the same thing. They just don't ever feel free. Why? Why is that? It's hard to say. It just damages you somewhere inside to know that they did this to you willingly that they know you're innocent, and, and they had to know I was innocent when they fabricated evidence, because they didn't have any. When the DNA didn't match me, they still kept fighting. I mean, the whole thing was put together. And I think it just damages your, your faith in humanity. Do you still believe that Resendez could have been responsible? Well, it's possible, yes. Um, I have to believe whoever killed my wife had killed before, probably multiple times, because I just can't believe anybody could be that violent and vicious the first time they killed somebody. With his execution, went any chance that we could ask him more questions? Um, how do you feel about that? Well, I feel cheated because I need to know who did this. And the odds are pretty good I will die not knowing who did this. It's just so tragic hearing Bill's story. It kind of leaves a lump in your throat. And I'm sure you don't need me to draw a line between 
Bill's story and the story of Diamantina Colahaco and Andres Mascara, who are sitting in prison at the moment and have been there for 20 years. Thank you very much for talking to me. Sorry to have to dredge up such a tragic and sad story, but I really do appreciate you taking the time to chat to me. Well, anything I can do to help. I appreciate it, Bill, and you take care of yourself. All right, you too. Bye. So over the course of the podcast series so far, I've collected a lot of circumstantial evidence linking Resendez to the murder of Daryl Colahaco. But at this point, maybe I've done all that I can. Maybe it's time for some legal help. And that's easier said than done when it's just you and your producer friend based in London working on a podcast series about some confessions that a serial killer gave you 15 years ago. Well, we've had some pretty exciting developments. After finding some legal experts who agreed to look in detail at the case, it could be that the key to helping Diamantina and Andres prove their innocence was hiding in plain sight all along. Dead Man Talking is a production of DMT Media and Audio Boom. The show is presented by me, Alex Hannaford, and the producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Our theme song, as always, is The Railroad by the band Goodnight Texas. You can check them out at facebook.com forward slash goodnighttexas. Don't forget to join us on Facebook too at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash deadmantalking where you can follow any developments and get involved. And we're also tweeting at deadmanpodcast.com. And you can also email us at deadmantalkingpodcast at outlook.com. <laughs>